Hola y bienvenidos al podcast Use Your Lengua. Previously named Quieres Más Masarurita, I wanted to change the name to make it more focused on the aspect of bilingualism and language use. So naturally, by combining both English and Spanish in the title, and having the focus on using all language skills, I feel like that this name is a good fit. For those of you that are new, I'm a university student in Central Illinois at Illinois State University. Last semester, I began this podcast simply as a school project, but now it has begun to morph into a living and breathing collection of documenting various people in my life. In this episode, we have Kim Patowski, a renowned professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago, specializing in Spanish and Spanish linguistics. Much of her focus in the past couple of years has been on the language usage of Spanish in different populations of youth, specifically Mexican and Puerto Rican groups. For those of you that are familiar, she led a TEDx talk a few years back, which focused on the intersection of these two groups, something she dubbed Mexican. I want to save the rest of the story for Kim to tell herself, so without further ado, let's get right into it and hear from Kim Petoski herself. I'm Dr. Kim Petowski, and I am a uh, Spanish uh, linguistics professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Great. What do you do at University of Chicago in terms of your um, being a professor there? Like, right. how many classes do you teach, or what, what are your roles designated there? Right. Well, it's the University of Illinois at Chicago, which is different from the University of Chicago. That's on mm-hmm. the south side of the city, and that's private. We are, and I, I point this out because I'm quite proud of our institution, we are... Um, the largest public institution in um, Chicago. Uh, we are a Hispanic-serving institution. About 35% of our undergraduates are Latino, um, and slightly over 50% are first-gen, that is the first generation, first in their families, to go to college. So we serve a very diverse population. Um, we're usually on the top 10 list of most diverse campuses uh, in the country. Um, so I've been there since 1999. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been a... Uh, professor, you know, in the Spanish department that whole time. I have what they call 0% or courtesy appointments in two other locations as well. This is something you do when you like to collaborate with with people in other fields. So I have a courtesy appointment in um, Latin American Latino Studies, and I have a courtesy appointment in uh, Curriculum and Instruction, which is across the street in the College of Education. So it's actually a different college than the one I'm housed in. Um, and we teach normal our normal course load because we are what is called a R1 university, research one. That means we got to do a lot of research. So they try to keep our teaching to a manageable load. So we do what's called a 2-2, two courses in the fall, two courses in the spring. And I've been on a 2-2 uh, for some time. And uh, typically we will teach one undergraduate course. My undergraduate courses might be... Uh, Variations in Spanish grammar around the Spanish-speaking world, or uh, Spanish in the United States, or language and cultural identity, something like that. Then my graduate courses might be uh, Introduction to Sociolinguistics in the Spanish-speaking world, or uh, Bilingualism, a seminar on bilingualism. Um, I've done other seminars on topics ranging from dual language education, which I hope we'll get to talk about here today, um, or things like diasporic bilingualism and... Uh, the Spanish of folks raised here in the U.S. who then their families go back to Mexico and then they're suddenly confronted with 
trying to fit into Mexican schools, right, with Spanish that, you know, grew in different ways uh, here in the United States and, and the challenges that that presents for those folks. So that's just uh, some of some of what I do. Cool. Oh, I want to apologize for misspeaking at the beginning. I, I meant to say UIC, but I right. said UC, so It happens quite a bit, and when I yeah. point it out to people, I don't mean to, you know, sort of be like, you know, it, it is important to me that, that um, people see the good stuff that's coming out of the University of Illinois, Chicago. U of C, University of Chicago, is a great place, mm-hmm. um, and we have a lot of similar missions, but, you know, we have a very different, um, I think, population. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for clearing that up. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, I, like I mentioned before, I, I watched your pot, your, your TEDx talk and the big focus of that was your, your mission and your focus on Mexican. So could you, could you explain what Mexican means and how, how you stumbled upon that discovery and where that's kind of led you down? Right. Um, so Mexicans, I was doing a, uh, I wrote a book with my colleague Lourdes Torres at DePaul University. And for this book, we wanted to interview Mexicans and Puerto Ricans in the city of Chicago. Those who immigrated as adults, uh, those who were born to adult immigrants, and then those who were born to others raised in Chicago. In other words, the grandchildren of people who had immigrated as adults. And one day a gal came to my office for her interview and I said, okay, it says here that, you know, tú eres mexicana. And she's like, sí, pero mi papá es puertorriqueño. And I was like, ay, chale, esta entrevista no me va a servir because she's not, right? She's this different thing. Uh, I interviewed her anyways and she was there and it ended up being fascinating. So two things then happened. Lourdes and I added a third category of interview into our book. So we have Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, and Mexicans, right? And then I kind of just got obsessed with the whole Mexican thing, and I interviewed, like, a whole bunch more. So I ended up interviewing... For the book, I think we have 35 Mexican interviews that we analyzed. I ended up doing a whole bunch more. I got a total of 71 Mexicans in Chicago who I interviewed and um, basically wrote a different book about them that came out, I think, in 2016 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to know, you know, see... Por ejemplo, tu mamá es mexicana y habla así con un español bastante mexicano. Y tu papá es puertorriqueño, tú sabes, y él habla así con esa monología y esas palabras que son diferentes. Like, how is a kid's Spanish going to sound? Especially since they're raised in Chicago, right? I mean, if they were raised in Mexico, we all know they're going to end up sounding like a Mexican. And if they're raised in Puerto Rico, even if mom or dad is Mexican, you're raised in Puerto Rico, you're going to grow up and sound like everybody else in Puerto Rico. What about in Chicago, though, where you don't have that pressure of one dialect or the other, or at least it's not as strong. Um, so that's what I did in the book. And there's a lot of findings in the book. Um, mm-hmm. I'll tell you one that is kind of awesome. Um, of those 71 Mexicans, a certain number, I can't remember the exact number, had very strong Puerto Rican phonology. Okay, so ellos hablaban así, tú sabes, and they sounded totally Puerto Rican. Their vocabulary was very Puerto Rican. Um, and it turns out that all of those people had Puerto Rican mothers, right? Uh, which doesn't really surprise anybody, right? And it has nothing to do with gender, right? And I should point out all of the parental units were heterosexual, right? There was a, a, a mother and a father. It'd be fascinating to look at, you know, same-sex couples. Um, but the, the point is it doesn't come down to gender. It comes down to child rearing, right? And it just so happens that many times mothers are more involved in, right, talking to the kids when they are younger, taking care of them due to child care inequities. Um, Anyway, I think it's also important to mention that there were 
Mexican Ricans with a Puerto Rican mom who did not have this preponderance of Puerto Rican features. So the, the conclusion is having a Puerto Rican mom is necessary, but not sufficient, right, to develop a, a Puerto Rican predominant phonological system. So that was like one of the many awesome things that, that the Mexican project revealed. Cool. Um, so you mentioned the necessary but not sufficient in displaying that um, Puerto Rican phonology or linguistic right. um, habits or right. features. Yeah. What what would make a a child or the student go from the the baseline of being from a Puerto Rican family to displaying those features? So like it's necessary but not sufficient. So like what other things did you, did you recognize or notice from those children that had Puerto Rican mothers and displayed Puerto Rican phonology? What did they have that was different from the Puerto Rican? I don't know. You don't know. Okay. Nope. I could not, you'd have to be in their lives day in and day out looking around. I had one hour interviews. That's it. So I tried my best to, you know, what we could say is that those who had a Puerto Rican mom, but did not have strong Puerto Rican features, you know, let's keep in mind that there's eight Mexicans to every Puerto Rican in the city of Chicago, so you're surrounded by Mexicans. TV, when you turn on TV, <clears throat> you're going to hear um, typically a dialect that is more similar to a Mexican. I'm, I'm going to say it's more similar to Mexican than it is to Puerto Rican, okay? You're not frequently going to hear Puerto Rican Spanish on Univision or any Telemundo or any of these things, right? Um, so you're just flooded with Mexican features all the time. Um, so that might help us understand why some of these people did not develop the Puerto Rican features. But your question was, what led some of them to develop the Puerto Rican features? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. So I want to I wanna go back to, to you and your childhood and how you got down this path of studying and being so involved in just the world of Spanish speaking. So can you speak to where you grew up, where you're from, what inspirations or um, powerful people you had in your life that set you down this path? Um, you know, in seventh grade, we had to pick Spanish, French, or Italian. <laughs> I picked Spanish because um, I knew how to count to 10 from Sesame Street, you know? So I figured, I, I got this. I'm halfway there, you know? Um, and then it was the classic, you know, I had a really wonderful... Um, teacher in high school. Actually, let me back up. In seventh grade, I had Mr. Stone, and I'm friends with his son, Dan, actually. Dan knows the story. Um, <clears throat> we took a, a test one day, and I had, prior to the test, looked in our textbook, and I flipped ahead, because like we were just doing the present tense, and I flipped ahead in the book. I'm like, oh, this is how you form the past tense. Oh, okay. Like It, it just made sense to me. And then I finished this test early. I flipped it over, and I was bored, I guess. So I started making up a story. Like, Tú, it was totally false. Tuve una fiesta, invité a mis amigas. Like, and I was conjugating all these verbs in the past tense, right? <clears throat> we get the tests back a few days later. Mr. Stone calls me out into the hallway. And I'm mortified, right? Because I'm a moquita muerta. Yo nunca hacía nada. Like, I never got in trouble, you know, at, at least at that age. Anyway, calls me out in the hallway. He's like, did you write this? I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I wrote it. And he goes, because my wife is Colombian and she's a native speaker. And, you know, she wondered if, do, do you speak Spanish in your home? And that's when I kind of realized, I think I'm being complimented here. And I said, no, you yeah, know, I just like looked ahead in the book and that's how I did it. And then it, that kind of stuck with me. I was like, maybe I'm good at this, you know. 
and but anyway, I, not that that didn't necessarily motivate me to continue studying. I had planned to just keep on going. Then I had a teacher in high school who was marvelous, Mr. Paul Ferrati, who I dedicated my first textbook to him. And he was just a total grammar nerd, and I guess I was too. So I really got into the whole grammar piece. Um, took the AP test, went off to college. Um, after my freshman year, I had completed everything that was necessary to do the junior year abroad, the, the Spanish courses, that is. So they just let me go my sophomore year. They're like, all right, go ahead. So I spent a year in Spain, in Salamanca, Spain. And I think that's what really solidified it. I lived in a Spanish-speaking community. I had Spanish-speaking friends who I still have to this day, <laughs> 8 billion years later. Um, and yeah, just I went back and I finished the major. I went to graduate school. I lived in Mexico. My Mexican friends sort of beat the Spanish accent out of me. And um, I've always had like Puerto Rican roommates. And so I feel like my dialect does shift depending on who I'm talking to. But um, yeah, and I, I, I try to travel to lots of different Spanish-speaking places. I love to learn about different varieties of language. And um, as you go through grad school, <clears throat> uh, it's very common that they have you teach like an undergraduate basic Spanish class, right? That helps you offset your tuition and your fees as you're going through grad school. So I remember at Urbana-Champaign, occasionally I would have these heritage speakers, right? These like mostly children of, of Mexicans who were raised in Chicago whose Spanish was better than mine, let's be honest, you know. Um, and I fell into that common trap of like, well, but I'm the teacher. I have to, you know, exert some kind of authority here. And so I would, I remember one kid, he used the word, I had learned the word resaca for hangover. You know, college kids like to talk about drinking beer and having hangovers. And he said, ah, que es eso, la cruda. And I didn't know the word cruda. So it's what kind of dawned on me, like, oh, <laughs> You know, I need to be a student of my own students, right? But it, it took me a while to figure that out. I was one of these odiosas, you know, these prescriptivists, like, no se dice así. And then it started to dawn on me that I was doing something that wasn't cool. Um, and then I got very interested. I started taking Latino studies classes as a grad student and some courses in the College of Ed. And I started connecting the dots that, yeah, this is a kind of linguistic bullying, and this is, you know, especially as a white girl who studied in Spain. Are you kidding me? Like, I'm going to come back here and correct these Mexican kids? Like, what? And I feel like the rest of my career has just been, like, making up for that. Because <laughs> um, so many people engage in that, you know, and I see myself in it. And I get why it's misinformed and misguided. And, and even if you're ignorant to the racism that's there and the classism that's there, it's there. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like I've dedicated my career to several things that have to do with that kind of anecdote, right? Um, mm -hmm. Helping Spanish teachers realize that, first of all, linguistic science tells us there's nothing that's incorrect. If a native speaker says it, or a bilingual community says it, it is correct. You can't call it incorrect. Now, we all know that certain varieties have more prestige than others. Um, so that is an interesting question. Do you tell the student, right, well, listen, you know, in English, we know that certain things have prestige, certain things don't. It's the same thing in Spanish. Um, some people don't like that approach. It's called the appropriate approach, right? Saying, well, this isn't appropriate for this context. And some people don't like that. And they say, well, that's like separate but equal. Maybe it is. Um, but I don't think we're doing our students any favors if we just say, talk how you want, when you want, where you want, with who you want, wherever you want. Like, you know, when you go to apply for that job, yes, that person would it would be nice if they just listened to what you said instead of judging you on how you said it 
that's not how the world works, you know? Um, so I like to, one of my favorite quotes is from my colleague, his name is Glenn Martinez, and he says, and this is a favorite boogeyman of all Spanish teachers around the universe, I think, the use of the word aiga instead of aiga, right? People clutch their pearls and faint when they hear aiga. They say it doesn't exist, but yet studies show 36% of people in Mexico use it, so guess what? It exists. What they mean when they say eso no existe is that it's not prestigious, right? It's not a dictionary. So here's what Glenn Martinez says. He says, if a student walks into my class saying aiga and walks out saying aya, in my opinion, no value has been added. If, however, the student walks in saying aiga and leaves my classroom understanding that aiga is stigmatized, why is aiga stigmatized? How does that stigmatization process even work? Whose interest does it serve? Aya is the prestigious form, and if you want, you can, I can use Aya instead, or I can use Aya, and I know I'll be judged in a certain way. I can make informed choices. Then value has been added. I ad-libbed a little bit. His quote was much pithier and, and nicer. Um, but that's, that's the, 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 the juice of the quote. And that's what I go for in my, when I'm teaching teachers how to teach, right? To have that kind of approach when they're working with their speakers. Es dice lo mismo con na nadie y naiden. Yep. Mm -hmm. Y es algo muy, es muy interesante. Yep. Mm -hmm. hay, hay muchos ejemplos de ese, de ese tipo. Um, y claro, yo entiendo por qué las maestras y los maestros quieren decir, you know, eso es incorrecto, eso no se dice. I mean, what they're trying to do es pulir o, o, o expandir el español de sus estudiantes para que sea de prestigio. That's, I think, an okay goal. But to go about it by shaming them, humiliating them, or telling them that they're wrong when there's nothing wrong, then that's where the problem comes in. And that's, if we can work on that piece, I think we'll go a long way in, in language education. Porque al final de cuentas, um, el sentido de, de, del mensaje todavía está ahí. Claro, con, con nadie, nadie, todavía. Se entiende. Alguna Ay, persona yeah. con... con um, exposición a, a, a ambas palabras, se entiende. Se entiende, se entiende. De hecho, hay un meme que a mí me encanta enseñarles a mis estudiantes. It's that <coughs> lady with the cat and they're yelling at the cat and you know that one and then the cat answers back. You've, you've, I'm sure you've seen it. Y, este, y la señora le grita y dice, <laughs> dijiste aiga. Y el gato le responde, pero me entendiste. And he puts the S at the end of entendiste como para... Mm -hmm. Right? Como tú. Enfatizar. Right, but that's stigmatized as well. Mm -hmm. That's another sí. thing that Spanish teachers faint when they hear, I oh, know, you know, because it's a working class or a rural, you know, feature. And if you go to a job interview saying, I pues tú fuiste whatever, like luego, luego, la gente va a pensar, esa persona no tiene instrucción. So it does mark you. Mm -hmm. It does mark you. Um, again, it's not incorrect, it's just stigmatized, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that's a funny. Funny meme. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see um, because I feel like this generation specifically, and we could kind of see this all all around the world that this generation is a lot more accepting, a lot more lenient with a lot of things. Of, like we could see a lot of movement with gender and sexuality and um, like race and ethnic background, and it'll be very interesting to see how this kind of evolves as well. Like will it be more relaxed and like, will going to job interviews not be like, will that not be an issue anymore to like be super focused on using correct grammar? Like to There's whom no were you talking? Or, 
Yeah. It's, it's very interesting to see. You mean prestigious grammar. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that point that you just made. That's an excellent point. Um, I've seen it, like, with my... I have two uh, teenage children, and they're always like, yeah, mommy, everybody's, you know, using they, and everybody's bisexual, and everybody... You know, and that's wonderful. Um, and yes, we saw, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement and, and all kinds of other things that, yes, I think you're right, people are becoming more woke in the good sense of the word. Pero yo pienso que language is sort of this last frontier. I know people who are generally kind of woke, but they still think it's okay to say, no, pues yo no juzgo a la gente because of their gender or their this or their race or that. I judge them based on their sentence structure and their grammar and their, and I'm like, pero tú no ves que... That's classist and racist. Mm-hmm. That's all the ists, right? Mm-hmm. La gente no pone esa. They think language is somehow divorced from all these other things, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Cuando tú criticas la manera de hablar de una persona, tú criticas a esa persona. Punto. Se acabó. And toda su comunidad. And, and so I, I hope you're right that all these other um, aberturas, right, de aceptación social, den lugar a también aceptar las maneras de hablar, but I see signs that they don't always go mm-hmm. hand in hand. And I'll, I'll say something else that um, I feel very fortunate to have come across the work of people like Nelson Flores and Jonathan Rosa, who I would encourage you to look up. They remind us that when you are racialized, okay, I'm here we're talking usually about people of color, it doesn't matter. You could speak the most prestigious, like, English on the planet. La gente te ve... And they, they read you, they hear you very frequently, they hear you differently. They hear you as racialized. So just speaking that prestigious variety of language is not enough to overcome that. And I'll tell you another, um, about another experiment, actually, that I think really drives this home. I'm, I hope I get these details correct. It was a bunch of students in Indiana, if I'm not mistaken. I think they were largely white college students. They split them in two groups. <clears throat> They listened to the exact same recordings, exact same recordings of lectures. Okay, I think one was social science, humanities, and one was like a STEMI kind of subject. One group saw the face of a, an Asian woman, and the other saw the face of a white woman. And I bet you can guess where this is going. The people who saw the face of the Asian woman said she had an accent. They heard the same recording, so it was like this ghost phantom accent that they invented right mm-hmm. um they also scored less accurately on a comprehension t- it's like their brains just shut down ah she's chinese she has an accent i'm not gonna understand her right mm-hmm. um so and i'll say united states this could be around the world we need to learn to listen better here you know and part of that is this accent thing you know people have accents we oh my god um and part of it is when they're speaking a variety that might be stigmatized, African-American English, right? Oh, that's just bad grammar. I can't understand what they're saying. Take a deep breath because you don't say the same thing when you're watching Dairy Girls and you have to put the, the captions on because you can't understand it because, oh, because that's Irish, that's British. You're giving them prestige, but you're saying African-American English is bad grammar and I can't understand it. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. Usted creció en el sistema educativo um, aprendiendo el español de una manera um, no natural. Right. ¿Por qué? Porque empezó a aprender la gramática mm-hmm. y conjugar verbos y, y todo eso, pero en realidad no es esa forma de aprender una, una lengua no es natural. No. 
eh, entonces tener esa experiencia right. de niña, ¿cómo, cómo ha afectado su, pres, uh, su perspectiva de crecer uh, hijos de propios? A mis hijos. Uh -huh. I mean, it didn't. I mean, so yo comencé mis estudios del español así, es cierto, pero llegué a vivir en España y tener comunidad y vivir una vida en español. Yo llegué a tener una persona, una personalidad, amigos, comunidad, etcétera, en español. I mean, hell, I lived in Mexico City for two years. I was engaged to a Mexican over there. So I had a life in Spanish. So cuando nacieron mis hijos, I mean, yo les hablaba en español. I don't think any of my seventh grade grammar drill and kill really <laughs> influenced how I raised them. Right? Mm -hmm. I just, yo les hablé en español a mis, a mis hijos. When people say, I learned Spanish through drill and kill, no, you didn't. They didn't. They learned it in spite of that. And they were probably language nerds like me. And they probably went abroad somewhere and lived in a community. Todos sabemos que aprendemos las lenguas conviviendo con personas que hablan esa lengua. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, so I was lucky. I got to break free of, and I'm not blaming my teachers. They were products of their time. You know, they thought you were supposed to just conjugate verbs, right? Um, unfortunately, people still do that today. Um, but I kind of broke free of all that and got to go to Spain and live a life and develop language, develop a personality, develop a system, an OS. I downloaded an OS that let me live a life in Spanish, right? Um, and I think anybody who does that, cuando ya tengan sus propios hijos, they're going to realize that, that, I mean, I'm just going to talk to them. I'm just going to talk to them in Spanish. I'm not going to have them do verb stuff, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it just makes sense that. And as a human being, you see your friends who have kids. You see parents interacting with kids. And you realize, how did I learn English? People just, I don't know, just talk to me, right? That's what I'm going to do to my kids. Just talk to them in Spanish. And that's right. So. Mm -hmm. um, usted tiene una, un mensaje final, un, un gran mensaje para... Para los oyentes, personas escuchando, para informarles sobre el sistema educativo o el bilingüismo o mm -hmm. aprender lenguas. Oh, my God, so much. Oh, my God, I'll be here for another hour. Um, ¿Cuáles son los mensajes que yo creo que son más importantes? Um, para las familias sería que hablarles en español a sus hijos o sus hermanitos, sus sobrinitos... No causa ningún daño, es todo lo contrario. Les concede muchísimas ventajas cognitivas, lingüísticas, de, de todo tipo. Um, no va a retrasar su adquisición de inglés. No va a causar un acento en su inglés. No va a ocasionar un speech hearing problem. Mm, no está confundido tu hijo. Si, si mezcla las dos lenguas, no está confundido. That's completely normal. El 60% de este planeta es bilingüe. They're not all running around confused, <laughs> right? Las lenguas, you have to think of them like raíces debajo de la tierra que se entrelazan. They're not confused. They help each other. Las lenguas en la cabeza de, de, de tu hijo se ayudan mutuamente. No está confundido tu hijo. Y hablarle en español o coreano o chino o whatever the language is, les concede un montón de ventajas. Por favor, If, if you want to speak English at home, that's fine. Pero que nadie les diga nunca que no deberían. Okay? You absolutely can and should speak what you want to at home. Para los maestros, el mensaje más importante a mi modo de ver es, cuando lo dice una comunidad, it is not incorrect. Okay? Um, furthermore, U.S. Spanish is its own variety. Okay? Y cuando a veces los maestros me dicen, ay, no, pero si estos niños, estos jóvenes... 
hablan español de esta manera, talking about la rufa está liqueando, o cuiteó el trabajo, whatever. Nadie les va a entender, oh my God. First of all, yes, they will. Yes, they will. Con un poquito de negociación de significado, just the same way when I put, when I watch Dairy Girls, there's stuff I don't understand. But that doesn't mean that they have to change the way they're talking para que yo les entienda, okay? U.S. Spanish is its own variety and it's completely valid, okay? We have to stop telling U.S. Spanish speakers que tienen que cambiar sus maneras de hablar para que se les entienda en otro lugar, no? I mean, I grew up in Long Island, New York, referring to an elevator as an elevator. Nobody ever said to me, Kim, you should say lift para que te entiendan en Inglaterra. Like, no, I don't have to do that. So why do we consistently tell our U.S. Spanish speakers, no puedes decir cuitear el trabajo porque no te van a entender en Perú. You know what? If I ever move to Peru or whatever, like maybe I'll adjust the way I speak, but I'm here now. Y esto lo dice mi comunidad. So it's not incorrect and it's completely valid, right? Now, if I want to usar un español más formal, que tiene un registro más amplio, then maybe I'll think about saying, dejo el trabajo. But if I want to say cuitear, you know, cuitear is different from dejo, also, if you think about it. So those are the two, I think, primary messages I like to give people. Great. Gracias por, por su tiempo. Claro Mucho sí. gusto en conocerla. Y, y sí, muchas gracias. What an incredible story and message she shared, right? Gracias a Kim otra vez por venir a Bloomington Normal para dar sus conferencias sobre los hispano y anglo hablantes en los Estados Unidos. Furthermore, big thank you to the Illinois State Languages Department for helping to set up these talks and the interview. I hope that some part of Kim's background and her story resonates with you, as I know that I will be carrying her words of wisdom into my teaching profession in the years to come. Shout out to my sister, Maggie, for contributing to the show and making the artwork. In the weeks to come, I will be re-releasing the conversations that I had in the very first episode of the show as individual episodes themselves. Instead of having just one large episode, I wanted to break down each of those conversations into bite-sized chunks so that you, the listeners, can enjoy each one individually. As for now, for Cuerdense, use your lengua. Nos vemos pronto.